Um, so I'd like to start by just saying hello to my parents. They're not here, but, you know, they're probably listening to the tape. So, um, <laughs> well, maybe they are, maybe they're not, but I thought I'd bet that joke on them doing it. Um, hello. There is going to be a little bit of audience interaction. I hate it when preachers do that as well, but it makes for good rhetoric. So um, what are you going to do? This story of... Uh, are we clicking? Yes. This story of Deborah is kind of an odd one. Um, and when I was asked which woman of the Old Testament I'd like to, uh, to speak about this morning, I had a look through them, um, and you... You kind of, I think you look at Ruth and you think, you know, it's a story about discipleship and it's about loyalty. And you kind of see the place that has in the Bible, yeah? And you look at, um, I don't know, Hannah is a good one. Um, that's about someone who prays and her prayer gets answered. That's really kind of solidly biblical material. This story is about someone who gets killed with a tent peg. And it's a bit harder to see where that fits in the biblical story. But I'm always drawn to essay questions and things which I don't know anything about because I like solving those problems. And so I've had a think about this one, and this is uh, the conclusion I've come to. So let's start a bit with the context. Um, this is the kind of thing which really floats my boat. I think you've seen my two weaknesses so far this morning already, which are complicated PowerPoint presentations and obscure bits of background detail. And so this is kind of going to be a bit of both. Um, if this kind of thing doesn't float your boat, it'll be over in a couple of minutes and you can switch back on. Um, so, story of Deborah occurs near the beginning of the book of Judges, which is part of a broader sequence of stories in the Old Testament, which is called the Deuteronomic History, which is these uh, seven books. And it's called the Deuteronomic History because they're books of history which share the perspective of the book of Deuteronomy, which is about the relationship between God um, as a, uh, an, a God who intervenes in history and his people, the people of Israel, and the covenant relationship uh, between those two parties. And it starts in uh, Deuteronomy with Moses and the law. Um, at the top of dates, they're all in BC, obviously. Um, so you've got Moses and the law, then following him, Joshua, who leads the people into the land. Then you have our period of the judges, which we'll talk about in a second. Um, and then following that, Samuel, who's the last uh, of the judges, wrote two books. And um, the first one tells about the, kind of the end of his leadership and the beginning of uh, the monarchy under King Saul. Then in Samuel 2, you get King David, which is the golden age of the Israelite monarchy, um, followed by two books of kings, which tell of David's heir, Solomon, and the divided kingdom. They shouldn't particularly be news to anyone, but you know that's just how judges... Uh, which is where Deborah is, fits into it all. Um, what the book of Judges is, is a 200-year period when the old leaders who had established them as a people had gone away, but whoever wrote it was aware of the coming monarchy. It was obviously written sometime after King Saul, and so there's this re phrase repeated throughout, which is, uh, in those days there was no king. So what you have is a community who the old leaders have gone away and the new leader is coming in the future and the judges were people who just responded to needs as they arose. It wasn't a, um, a continuous lineage. There was gaps of, you know, at the end of that story it says there was a, a peace for 40 years and so there was no judge for 40 years until the next problem came along. But so it's, you need to get this. Community, the old leaders had gone away and the new leader was coming, and it was just people responding to need for a period. So I'm trying to think 
of another community where the old leaders had gone away and the new leaders were coming and nothing came to mind. <laughs> so the question is, who were the judges? The first thing any commentary will tell you when you look at this problem is what they weren't. And what they weren't was judges. Only uh, one judge in the book of Judges is described as having judicial authority, as deciding between cases. And that, as it happens, is Deborah. Uh, Samuel also does it, but he's not in the book of Judges. All of the others, and these are what they're called, were warrior leaders. It's a bit hard to see, but their references are there if you're interested. Ones in capital letters we know a lot about. Those are the major judges. The ones in lowercase letters, you get a couple of verses. Usually it just says, there was a problem... Tola turned up, everything was fine. You know, that's pretty much what they say. The ones in capitals, you get a proper story. Um, and in the introduction to the book of Judges, which is the first couple of chapters, it says, the Lord raised up the judges, and he was with them and saved the people out of the hands of their enemies. And that is the, the structure of each of the uh, leaderships of each of these uh, people. Um, so yes, that's a pattern for the rest of it. I need to turn the page, sorry. And across this period, there is a worsening situation. Othniel is brilliant. Don't get any better than Othniel. Ehud's very cool. Uh, he kills someone with a sword, and he, the person he kills is so fat, the whole of his stomach goes around the sword. That's fun. Um, then you've got Deborah, um, and that's kind of a turning point. Gideon's got some great stuff about him, but makes some serious mistakes as well. And then when you, by the time you get down to Samson, it's mostly bad. Um, and so there's this worsening situation, and uh, the book of Judges tells this story. So Deborah's quite close to the beginning of that. But in fact, only one character in the book of Judges is specifically called a judge. Would anyone like to take a guess? It's not Deborah, but it's a good guess. It, it, it's in gold just because that's our, uh, our topic for today, not because of it. Um, any other guesses? Liz knows, because I've told her, so she can't answer. The answer is God. The answer's always God in church. The answer's God. It says in Judges 11, let the Lord, the judge, decide this dispute this day between the Israelites and the Ammonites. That's the only time that capital J, judge, is used to describe any character. Because all of the other characters who we saw before are doing the work of judging. They're doing it as a verb. They are, they are judging, but they are not the judge. I think that's a key to this whole story. This is why this story is in the Bible. So let's break that down a bit. Proverbs 21.31 says, The horse has been made ready for the day of battle, but victory rests with the Lord. And whoever wrote Proverbs didn't have Deborah in mind, as far as I know, um, when he wrote this. But this is what I think sums up the heart of this passage. Where was I? Yes, at the beginning of the period. The Israelites cry out to the Lord for help. Judges 4, verse 3. They'd gone away from God and started worshipping Baal and Asherah, his, um, his wife in the uh, mythology of the Canaanites where they were living. And uh, they were sold into uh, the hands of King Jabin, a Canaanite king, who oppressed them for 20 years. And at the end of 20 years, it took them that long the Israelites cried to the Lord for help. And this is God's answer. The Lord commands you go. 
I, God, will lead Caesarea to the river Kishon and give him into your hands. The Lord will deliver Caesarea into the hands of a woman. This is the day the Lord has given Caesarea into your hands. Has not the Lord gone ahead of you? The Lord routed Caesarea. On that day, God subdued Jabin. When you, Lord, marched, the earth shook. They recite the victories of the Lord and curse Meros because they did not come to help the Lord. There's another one up there. We'll talk about that in a second. God's answer to their prayer for help is himself because victory rests with the Lord. And the key to the whole of the battle, the reason we know how they won the battle is this one. From the heavens, the stars fought. The river Kishon swept the enemy away. Now, that's important for a couple of reasons. The stars in um, ancient thought were associated with rain. And the location of the battle was in a valley, a riverbed, but it was, it was not the season when the river was particularly full. It was a nice, flat, dry area. And remember, Caesarea's um, battle strength lay in having 900 iron chariots. So the location that God told Barak and Deborah to face the, Israel, face the Canaanites was a place which seemingly favoured the enemy. But there was a rainstorm that flooded the river and turned the valley into a marsh. And so suddenly, all of Caesarea's iron chariots, which was the cutting edge of military technology at the end. Remember, at this stage, the Israelites are a Bronze Age tribe. And this is a turning point when the iron was just starting to become a thing. So this is top-notch military technology. And it's suddenly been made useless because of a freak rainstorm. And the other reason that's important is because the god or gods who the Israelites had gone away to were the Baals, Baal and Asherah. And without going into too much of the details, the story of Baal and Asherah is they were uh, farmyard gods who brought the rains. Every September, they'd have special couple time and the rains would come as a result of that. And so what God is showing, someone like that joke, <laughs> What God is showing here is that not only can he make the strength of the enemy their weakness, but that he is better than the gods who the Israelites went to. And he is better in a way which wins the Israelites this victory. I think that's pretty cool. Um, Now, you could say this was a rainstorm. It was just a coincidence. And you might be right. But the song that we heard, that was beautifully read, by the way, says in it that the Lord fought on their side. You know, all of these things are the Lord fighting on their side. So, and we know from the type of Hebrew that's used in that poem that you can date it to around 1,200 years BC. And we date the battle to around 1,200 years. BC. We know that song was not a commentary after the fact a long time later with a historian just trying to rationalize everything. This is the response, that song is the response of people at the time. And that says a lot about the mindset of the Israelites at that time. It says that when things went their way, whether it was a coincidence, whether it was just circumstances, they saw God working in that. And do we have that mindset today? I struggle to have that mindset. I think probably a lot of people do. 
It's maybe easier when, you know, a new baby is born, or when we're healed from a long-term illness, or when we get a new job. Those times it's easy to thank God for. But what about all the other times? The time when you need to be somewhere and all the lights are green. Great. The time when it's the middle of the summer holidays, it's been pouring for a week, and the rain stops for an hour, and you can take your kids out, they run around for an hour, and they come back. You know, do we see God in those situations as well? Because the Israelites did, and their response was that victory rests with the Lord. How good is our worship and our prayer life going to be if we have things to thank God for every day? Because we're seeing him in everything we do, in everything that goes our way. Uh, there's someone near us who, we don't know who it is, one of our neighbours takes our bins out. And we wake up, kind of about, I don't know, whatever, 7, 7.30, and we hear the bin men going past and he, we forgot to put the bins out. And we go out later, someone's taken them out for us. We don't know who does that. But praise God for those, that person. You know, that's a small blessing, but it does bless us. And praise God for that. And that kind of leads us into the second way that God achieves his victory. first way is through circumstance. The second is through people. I'm going to have another drink. John 15:16 says, I chose you so that you might go and bear fruit. Uh, where did I get to? Oh, yeah, there we are. Um, the book of Judges is all about, oh, ah, that, the right person for the right time and place. Um, so God works through people. And each one of these people in this story, Deborah, Barak, and Jael, I think says a different thing about how God uses people. Deborah was a woman um, which was uh, unusual. Um, but she used her femininity to inform the, jo- the, go- uh, the job God had given her. It says in um, Judges 5 that Deborah arose to be a mother in Israel. And I think what that says to me, I love that, because that, what that says to me is that she subverted what was a male role and turned it into a female role. She reappropriated that role. Um, so that's the first way. By using what's different about you, what God has given you, the gifts God's given you, to make a difference. And not doing things the way the last guy did it, but doing them the way you would do it. Because God has given you those things, and he will achieve his victory through them. The second way is Barak, who was a coward. He said... He was told to go to battle, to lead a great army, and that the Lord would go with him. And he said, I'll only go if you, Deborah, come with me. And Deborah, because she was a mum to Israel, said, of course I'll go with you. But I don't expect to get any credit for this. But God led Barak to one of the great victories of Israelite history. There are psalms written about this. In the book of Hebrews, when it's talking about the Israelite histories of the past, there's a bit at the end where it says, there's a whole bunch of other heroes and I don't have time to talk about them. One of those guys is Barak. 
So there we see God turning someone's weakness around into strength. The last thing is Jael, who is a foreigner. And who... The weird thing about this story is we don't know what her motivation was. There's never a time where it says God spoke to Jael and she did this killing. We don't know why she did it. Maybe she just didn't like the look of him. And more to the point, she was a foreigner. She lived in their territory, but she wasn't an Israelite. She had no interest in the things the Israelites were interested in. So, jail is an example of God using someone in spite of themselves. You know, using someone when they don't know they're being used by God. And so how can each of these things relate to us? How can we use what's different about us? What our gifts are at church? God will bless you if you use those gifts. And you probably know what they are. And you've got to find a way of using them at church and God will bless you. Or at work. If you're conducting yourself in a way which is notably different from the people around you, that difference can be used by God, and you might not even know it's happening, can be used by God to work his victories. What about your weakness? What are the things you hate doing? What are the things you're really uncomfortable doing? God can use those things as well. And what about times where you just put yourself in situations, just have conversations with people? Because you don't know. The thing which you say, which is just you talking about your week, can speak to the very heart of someone. And there, three, four weeks later, they're remembering that and it's blessing them. And God is working through that. And you don't even know, but you have to be out there for that to happen. And we see this all throughout the Bible, don't we? We see... um, uh, who? Moses. Moses had, had, had a stutter. And he didn't want to go and lead his people. He was the last person you choose to read aloud a detailed legal system. But God chose him to be the person to whom he gave four books of law. What about David, who was a shepherd, who was so insignificant in his family that when Uh, Samuel came to anoint one of Jesse's sons as king, his dad forgot about him. He said, oh yeah, there is another son. He's in the fields being a shepherd. And he became the shepherd of all God's people. And in doing so, was the model for how Jesus led us, the shepherd. Um, What about Esther? There's no reference to God in the book of Esther. Esther has no idea how the things that she is doing relate to anything else. But it's a powerful story. Um, more, on, more on that later. Um, not necessarily today. Uh, <laughs> Peter was an idiot most of the time. And he was a fisherman with no education, and he became the Pope. Paul was so passionate about killing Christians that he got paid to do it full time. And God turned that passion that he had into being the greatest, probably, the greatest evangelist of Christian history. So the question is, why is God such a relentlessly poor judge of character? And the answer is, because victory rests with the Lord. Victory rests with the Lord. So he uses our weakness to show his strength. And he uses... He subverts our expectations to show his compassion and his love. And 
I've said everything. <laughs> I've said everything I want to say on that. Victory rests with the Lord. But it's not just alone that we're doing this, is it? And that's the third thing. Hello, clicker. There are many parts, but one body. This isn't a story about Deborah. I haven't really talked that much about Deborah. I chose it because it was a woman of the Old Testament, and then I found it was nothing to do with her. Well, a little bit to do with her, but not much to do with her. And it's not really a story about Barak either, or Jael. It's a story about all three of them working together. Deborah and Barak very explicitly working together. Jael just happening to be working towards the same conclusion. But not only was it these three people working together, what their strength was, and we kind of miss this out a bit because there's a, a detailed section which is kind of dull in the Song of Deborah, which is why we cut past it, where it says about all of these tribes. Tribes on the right, uh, sorry, your left. Um, they didn't come and help Deborah and Barak. But all these tribes over here on your left, Ephraim, Benjamin, Machir, which was half of the tribe of Manasseh, Zebulun, Issachar, and Naphtali, they all came and helped. And remember that at this time, the people of Israel were not united. The unity came in the monarchy. And what Joshua did was not a complete conquest of the land. What happened is these tribes, they all came in and they found a little plot, but they didn't kick everyone else out. There were still tribes of Canaanites around. And so these were all divided. They all had their own interests. They had a bit of shared history and a bit of shared religion, but that was it. But what Deborah and Barak were able to do was unite their interests together, and in that unity came the victory. And so again, how does that relate to us today? You know, we're not a group of individuals, are we? We're Camborne Church. And we're not just a church, we're part of the church, a global movement of people who worship God. And more than that, we're the body of Christ, aren't we? So when Camborne looks at Camborne Church, it sees God at work. And when it looks at 19 in the coffee house, it sees God at work. When it looks at gazebo, or buffalo nostril, whatever that is, or um, our house groups, maybe, or carols at the pub at Christmas, what a great ministry that is. When Camborne sees all of those things, it sees God at work. But it's not about us and what we do. It's not really about gazebo or 19. It's about us doing those things faithfully and God using those things to achieve his victory. Because victory rests with the Lord. So what have we learned today? Any guesses what we might have learned today? I've said it like a million times. <laughs> Sorry? Victory rests with the Lord, yes. That's what we've learned today. And, it, and God works that victory in three ways. Through miracles, coincidence, and circumstance, through individuals, and through communities. So, I don't know, that kind of, to me, looks like it covers a lot of areas where God can work, you know? But if victory rests with the Lord, this is, this is liberating, because if victory rests with the Lord, he doesn't just get the credit for the victory, he takes responsibility for that victory happening. So, in our lives, in our situations, in our ministries, the responsibility for those things... 
and those things being a success lies with God. But the credit goes to God because victory rests with the Lord. Liz, this morning, this service, the responsibility for this service is what? Is whose? God's. I told you there'd be interaction. (laughs) And who gets the credit when this service has gone well? God. Why? Yes, worship group. (laughs) Whose responsibility is it to make sure that these people meet with God in the sung worship? (laughs) God's. And who gets the credit when it happens? Why? Victory rests with the Lord. Thank you. Are there any house group leaders in? Home group leaders? Yeah, some at the back. Whose responsibility is it to make sure that your house group has good spiritual input and is walking the right way? God's. And who gets a credit when they do? Who do you thank? God. Why? Because victory rests with the Lord. In all of your ministries, who does victory rest with? God. Yes. And who gets the credit? God gets the credit. And why? Yeah, it's kind of a circle, isn't it? You know? And in the situations which you brought this morning, what's really on your heart? What's breaking your heart this morning? What's you find re- finding really difficult this morning? Probably a lot of you have something in your mind at the moment. The responsibility for sorting that out rests with someone. Who does it rest with? God, yes. And who gets a credit when you have an amazing breakthrough? You suddenly see that thing break. God. And why? Because victory rests with the Lord. And who's taken the responsibility for sin and death? God. And who gets the credit for doing that? Who do we worship for doing that? God. Because victory rests with the Lord. Amen.